Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape and reform ongoing narratives. So I'd like to begin this episode with a few introductory questions about today's topic regarding success and failure. How would you define success? How do the people around you define success? Does having wealth or owning material possessions make someone successful? Does having a high-paid job make someone successful? Is prestige associated with the success? Indeed, to most people, success is measured through their visual senses, via monetary terms or by high-value possessions such as cars, houses and jewellery. Another view is that success is achieved through self-belief by facing various challenges with a positive attitude of determination. And this requires reaching into one's innermost self to find strength and courage. It's about using a focused attitude to enable positive changes and find self-contentment in relation to personal achievements and ultimately a realization that success does not come from what others believe about you. And others would argue that a truly successful person is someone who can assess their accomplishments and the struggle required to achieve them, perhaps realizing that they did not succumb to pressure despite facing a challenging period. These opposing views are very subjective in their approach, and as such, they can only be truly explored by the person submitting the question. But whichever view one abides by, these perspectives are usually divided into two camps. The first is that having an abundance of money, a large house and a nice car means success is derived from what others perceive about you as an individual. The second approach is a vision of self-contentment in life. And this implies that success is derived from what you believe about yourself and one's ability to overcome personal setbacks. But why does our definition of success matter? We can answer this question partly because of the overarching emphasis given to financial success in contemporary society, but also because many people define success in the wrong way by setting unrealistic goals and branding themselves a failure from society's perspective, that is, especially if those goals have not been achieved. And although there's nothing incorrect about defining success via financial or material goals, there is, however, much to consider, such as adopting a balanced approach to life, which means enjoying individual successes despite the ups and downs. But let's begin today's episode by looking at some common definitions of success using four broad categories. And each are important in their own ways and, and should be considered when developing one's own definition of success. So number one, financial excess. This refers to having the amount of income that you generate and 
as well as the material things that you own, a desire to live comfortably and, and grow one's wealth is clearly an aspiration of many people regardless of their income bracket. But choosing financial success as one's exclusive definition creates a blinkered view and often ignores other possibilities. Number two is positional success. This refers to having a position that provides power and control. Many people consider this to be a route to success and power because they may be naturally goal-orientated, but again, it creates a blinkered, unbalanced viewpoint which ignores a host of personal opportunities. Number three, relationship success. Many people strive for a work-life balance and view their family and social bonds to be the most important aspect of their decision-making. And by nurturing close relationships, large swathes of people may consider taking a job which is closer to home but pays less in order to spend more time with their family. However, this can be a double-edged sword because if the job doesn't meet certain financial criteria, it can also place a strain on relationship success too. Fourthly, development success. This refers to what we do for ourselves and and for others in a fulfilling manner. Many people enjoy the benefits of learning through self-development and many people enjoy giving back to others through volunteering as a way of nurturing success. But this form of success is often overlooked because there are no immediate financial rewards, although participation is thought to be an excellent measure of success. So having looked at four broad definitions, what is the prevailing view of success and failure? Many people define success by comparing themselves to wealthy and powerful elites such as A-list celebrities, high-profile CEOs and politicians, perhaps because these people possess material wealth in abundance and exude the trappings of success. Interestingly, some of the most successful people, such as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, define their success not in material terms, but through the relationships they maintain with others and consider what they do for others to be more important factors in success. A balanced definition of success incorporates self-fulfillment and self-development, even while experiencing ups and downs in life. But despite this, all embracing definition, society rarely rewards defeat, and even the annals of history will seldom document the most glaring failures. The only exceptions are those failures that become stepping stones to later success, such as Thomas Edison's memorable invention, the electric light bulb, which apparently took 1,000 attempts before he developed a successful prototype. And when asked by a reporter how it felt to fail 1,000 times, he replied, I didn't fail 1,000 times. The light bulb was an invention with 1,000 steps. But unlike Edison, most people actively avoid the prospect of failure. And because we are intent on not failing, we actually don't aim for success, settling instead for a goal of mediocrity. And when we do make errors, we highlight over them, editing the mistakes to avoid closer scrutiny. In Ron Howard's 1995 movie, Apollo 13, the character of Gene Krantz, who was NASA's director of flight operations, utters the memorable line, failure is not an option. And it's this particular phrase which epitomizes the mindset of our modern success-oriented society where failure is simply not entertained because it represents weakness or deficiency. 
And this is a view held by Catherine Schultz, author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. She argues, quote, it is our meta mistake. We are wrong about what it means to be wrong. Far from being a sign of intellectual inferiority, the capacity to err is crucial to human cognition, unquote. And that's because Catherine Schultz believes failure is a great motivator. When we look closely at the great minds throughout history, from the likes of the Eastern philosopher Confucius, who believed that our greatest glory is not in never failing, but in rising every time we fail. Or American author Dale Carnegie, stating, quote, Develop success from failures. Discouragement and failure are two of the surest stepping stones to success, end quote. So these ideas provide an insight into the willingness to embrace failure from an already established line of thought. However, the dominant corporate culture of the post-industrial age argues against failure and defeat because it's perceived to be some sort of sickness or deviancy which affects both individual and society. And this viewpoint is immortalized by Winston Churchill's famous words, we shall never surrender. These thought patterns are indoctrinated from our childhood by having to sit tests and exams. As a society, we see failure as detrimental to our long-term success. From a young age, we're taught to avoid failure. In school, we aim to get A grades so that we can go to a good university or receive a good job offer after college. We avoid getting an F because there's a certain stigma of negativity surrounding it. Most students live in fear of failing tests, subjects and grades, thereby staying behind to perhaps repeat the school year. Even the letter grading system which uses F is unique. F is the only grade which corresponds to its actual meaning, failure. And it's designed solely to erode morale. It's a subtle way of reminding us that failure is destructive and by embedding it in our mind we treat it as a form of deviancy. The inherent flaw with this destructive approach is that no corporate business or individual career ever runs smoothly because making mistakes is inevitable. And this has been clearly documented by the business trajectories of Netflix or Amazon, which were initially loss-making entities before their fortunes turned. In both cases, it was the early mistakes made during the development phase that laid the foundation for future success. However, the real irony is that in today's globalized economy, many corporations are taking a leaf out of the books of progressive employers such as Intuit, the accounting software company, which famously boasted, we celebrate failure. Intuit's co-founder, Scott Cook, believes, quote, every failure teaches something important that can be the seed for the next great idea, unquote. And this is also true of other trailblazers who have celebrated failure, such as Sir Richard Branson of Virgin Atlantic with his adventures in hot air ballooning during the 1980s. Although many of his record-breaking attempts ended in failure, his cavalier approach represented a hallmark of the company's no-fear philosophy, whereby great success and great risk go hand in hand, and failure is seen as a natural outcome. But by the same token, there are also many other successful people who have experienced failure. For instance, Michael Jordan is widely regarded as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. 
and yet he was dropped from his high school basketball team because his coach didn't think he was good enough. Warren Buffett, the, the famous uh, private investor, is one of the world's largest and most successful investors, but he was rejected by Harvard University. So now that we have some context in terms of the prevailing view of success and failure, in the next section I'll begin to outline some of the causes of the fear of failure. And I'll begin by addressing two main questions. Firstly, what are the common reasons for fearing failure? Secondly, what are the stages of failure? To address the first question, the causes of failure, it's necessary to explain what do we mean by failure. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, failure can be defined in its simplest terms as a lack of success. Failure is best conceptualized as a deviation from expected and desired results, whereas success refers to a sense of achievement or accomplishment. Failure is indeed a complex topic with multiple dimensions of meaning. Everyone adopts different definitions of failure simply because we all have different benchmarks, values and belief systems. A failure for one person might simply be a great learning experience to somebody else. And many of us are afraid of failing, but fear of failure is something else entirely. It's when we allow that fear to stop us doing the things which move us forward and achieve our goals. Fear of failure can be linked to many causes, for instance, having critical or unsupportive parents in a cause for some people. Perhaps they were routinely undermined or humiliated in childhood. Hence, they carry those negative feelings into adulthood. And experiencing a traumatic event at some point in your life can also be a cause. For example, let's say several years ago you gave an important presentation in front of a large group of people and performed very poorly. The experience might have been so terrible that you became afraid of failing in other things and you still carry that fear years later. And this leads us to our next area of discussion, the psychological and sociological perspectives which cause failure. Number one, the first perspective is life traps. This refers to unsatisfactory relationships or a lack of self-esteem or perhaps feelings of being unfulfilled. Self-defeatist behavior patterns are also considered to be life traps. These patterns usually begin in childhood and repeat themselves through ongoing cycles. Essentially, they refer to personality patterns caused by some kind of psychological trauma during a person's formative years. And the trauma can be defined as being abandoned, criticized, overprotected, abused, excluded or deprived. And eventually, life traps become part of an individual's behavior pattern. And in order to change these life traps, individuals must be able to recognize and understand their origins. Otherwise, they dictate how a person thinks, acts, and relates to others. Life traps can also trigger strong feelings such as anger, sadness, and anxiety. Even where individuals appear to have everything such as social status and ideal marriage, the respect of people around them, career success, those affected are still unable to enjoy life or believe in their potential accomplishments. Life traps manifest in one's personal life and during their career path, some life traps cause individuals to fail because they translate into a sense of inadequacy regarding areas of achievement such as school, work and sports. 
Life traps can represent a sense of failure relative to one's peers because when children are made to feel inferior through poor achievement, this causes them to spin out into a pattern of failure once they reach adulthood. And during one's adult life, traps are reinforced by exaggerating the degree of past failures and by acting in ways that ensure a cycle of continuous failure. The second perspective is low self-esteem or self-confidence. This is commonly expressed through negative statements such as, oh, I'll never be good enough to get that promotion or I'm not smart enough to get on that team. Positive self-esteem creates a feeling of security in terms of one's personal worth and in relation to various social work situations. And the opposite of this feeling is low self-esteem where an individual feels insecure Failure creates low self-esteem and causes a lack of self-confidence in vulnerable areas such as intimate relationships, social situations or in the workplace. Low self-esteem and failure are invariably linked and correspond to feelings of unworthiness, inadequate achievement and substandard work. And those affected experience poor success, a sense of being less talented or less intelligent than their peers. Also, reluctance to try new things or get involved in challenging projects. Self-esteem, or the lack of it, points inward to your own personal reputation, and by its very nature, it requires an understanding of the level of standards being used to judge you. Overall, life traps and self-esteem are long-term patterns. They're deeply ingrained and similar to addictions and therefore hard to change. But equally, change requires the willingness to experience pain and discipline. And the deepest pride for many people comes from a realization of self-esteem because it represents attainment of personal value. The third perspective is self-sabotage. Common symptoms include stopping short of success, financial insecurity, feeling like a failure even if you're succeeding, finding it easy to start things but hard to finish them, staying in a work role that does not require the full expression of your talents or skills, often manifested through procrastination or excessive anxiety. The fourth perspective is perfectionism. This is a willingness to try only those things that you know you finish perfectly and successfully. Hence, we realize by reviewing these various perspectives that it's almost impossible to go through life without experiencing some kind of failure. But the interesting part is this. From which perspective do we choose to view it? And we can choose to see failure metaphorically as the end of the line or as a superb learning experience because each time we fail at something we search for the lesson we are supposed to learn to grow as individuals and to avoid making the same mistake again so let's turn our attention now to an analysis of success and failure which helps us explain the mechanics of these two important concepts so at first glance success and failure are polar opposites To fail is not to succeed, and success is the absence of failure. However, when we look closely, there's a complex relationship between these two concepts, and they're not mere antonyms, because by understanding how they relate to each other, it offers important insights into the nature of failure and how it should be approached. And broadly speaking, there are two important relationships to consider between success and failure. Let's start with the first relationship, which is 
that failure defines the limit of success. This means that failure starts where success ends. In other words, when we know we are no longer succeeding because we encounter a failure. This is where the individual reaches what's known as a comfort zone. This is a situation where ongoing success will inevitably lead to failure because the outer boundaries have been reached and further success is not possible. The comfort zone refers to a situation of optimal behavior because all opportunities have been explored and all possible benefits exploited. The objective is to push success to the point of failure and yet by not failing it indicates that we are not trying hard enough. And this raises a very important point about exploring those boundary levels. Essentially there are two options. Either we turn back and remain in the comfort zone where there is no further chance of success or accept the failure and proceed beyond the boundary levels which leads to continued success. And this brings us to the second relationship between success and failure, which is success follows the limits of failure. The key insight here is success often follows failure because other options have been exhausted. And when we stop failing, then inevitably we succeed. This is a new zone where failure is frequent but allows the individual to leapfrog into an area of success. Emerging from the failure zone into the new zone brings us success, which was previously hidden or unavailable. Here we move beyond the failure and we begin to learn new ways of succeeding and performing. This is referred to as the innovation zone and it's reached by breaching the initial failure zone until one eventually succeeds. One good example of the innovation zone is Thomas Edison's discovery of the incandescent filament before he emerged into the innovation zone. So how do we make sense of this analysis, which on the surface it seems quite complex? Does it imply that failure is a crucial ingredient for success? Well, one useful insight is The fear associated with failure can be thought of as a binary entity which alternates between success and failure. So instead of seeing failure as a natural part of life, we only see one element of the binary system, which is the negative aspect. And this this can be explained further using the work of two well-renowned psychologists, Kahneman and Traversky. In 1979, their prospect theory shed light on why trauma caused by loss is twice as great as the gain from a win. And this is a remarkably unique point because it explains the negative impact that that a loss has on an individual. Overall, it explains why individuals and society will go to extreme lengths to avoid a loss or a failure. And it's also interesting to note that the business philosophy of two of the greatest tech giants of our century, Amazon and Alibaba, both have an entirely different mindset to failure. They are both tolerant of it and they embrace it. Both Jack Ma of Alibaba and Jeff Bezos of Amazon believe that it's okay to fail and that failure is part of a bigger process. For instance, Jeff Bezos emphasizes that being tolerant of failure is a huge part of the culture and Amazon. 
and it's led to its greatest successes. This teaches us that although failure can be a painful and often hurtful experience, what, what it develops is an aversion to failure. And it actually allows us to unlock hidden potential. But in order to do this, we have to change our mindset on failure. Instead of seeing failure as detrimental, it's necessary to view it as a tool for success. A tool which is a normal part of progression, helping us to learn what works and what does not. So let's turn our attention now to another very important aspect of failure, which is failure from a corporate perspective. This is arguably one of the most important perspectives of failure because people spend almost two-thirds of their day exposed to some sort of work organization culture. Therefore, this level of exposure has a huge influence on our view of success and failure. And most co corporate executives have been taught that failure is bad, which to a certain degree, is understandable given that departments are mainly run by budgetary targets. And still to this day, profit and loss are key performance indicators. And so executives are paid to succeed because ultimately organizations are responsible to their shareholders. But in reality, failures are inevitable and some even beneficial. But learning from failure is not straightforward because it requires strategy-specific measures for each organization. This is because the procedures required to detect and analyze failures are non-existent in, in most companies. And this context-specific approach that we refer to requires disposing of antiquated cultures and the stereotypical view of success in order to embrace the lessons of failure. It involves creating an organization culture in which employees feel safe admitting to or reporting on failure. For instance, by asking people to reflect on their errors and encouraging them to avoid similar mistakes in the future or possibly assign a review team to report on what occurred and then distribute it throughout the organization. But these kind of measures are naturally aversive to most organizations because they take time, effort, uh, there's policies, procedures and processes involved. So we'll carry on with this discussion in the next segment because we're just coming up to a short break and there'll be much more to come in the next segment. See you shortly. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time 
2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada. It's great to have your company. So in the previous segment, we began our discussion about failure from a corporate perspective. And in particular, we just started to discuss about a context-specific approach. And this involves creating, hopefully, an organization culture in which employees feel safe admitting to or reporting on failure, possibly as as a way of reflecting on their errors and encouraging them to avoid similar mistakes in the future. But the first step is... Uh, for leaders, uh, that is, to uh, implement such a system is to realize how the corporate blame game creates barriers. And from an early age, children learn that admitting failure means taking the blame. In reality, the blame game creates a conflict of interest. Because otherwise, how can executives respond effectively to failures without essentially giving a green light to an anything-goes policy? If people are not assigned blame for their failures, there's very little to motivate them to work hard or provide exemplary performance. And this leads us to an interesting question. Is it possible to differentiate between failures in terms of their magnitude? Although any number of things can go wrong in organizations, mistakes generally fall in three categories, preventable, complexity-related, and intelligence-related. And this is a view held by Amy Edmondson, a leadership and management professor at Harvard Business School. In an article written for the Harvard Business Review entitled Strategies for Learning from Failure in April uh, 2011, she provides details of three distinct types of failure. And she sets out that with proper training and support, employees can follow these processes consistently. And when they don't, the results are deviance, inattention, or poor performance. So let's look at these three intelligence-related um, aspects. So the first one is preventable failures in predictable operations. Most failures in this category involve deviations from the norm in well-defined processes of high volume or routine operations. One example is the Toyota production system, which incorporates a continuous learning from small, very tiny failures into its methodology for improvement. The second is unavoidable failures in complex systems. A large number of organizational failures are 
actually due to the specific uncertainty of work. For instance, a combination where requirements, people and problems may never have occurred in a previous situation. Examples of this include unpredictable situations, including triaging patients in a hospital emergency room or nuclear power plants where a system failure is a constant risk. And thirdly, intelligent failures at the frontier. Failures in this category provide valuable information which can help an organization leapfrog its competition and ensure future growth. They generally occur when answers are not available in advance because the exact situation has not been encountered before. Examples of this include discovering new drugs or creating a radically new business model. So let's elaborate on the discussion regarding corporate failure. One of the main points to emerge is success is a gradual process and failure is an inevitable byproduct, creating new opportunities along the way. Moreover, manufacturing processes which have combined with evolving information systems in the 21st century now offer endless possibilities and complexities in altering the parameters of society, the economy, and the environment. And, and this has become an everyday feature of our lives, the way these two aspects are completely interlinked. And this is so much so that technology is not only infinitely intertwined, but it co-evolves, creating what's known as an adaptive system to evaluate failure and monitor it in an ongoing basis. So let's look at this adaptive system. What it means is that the complex changes which characterize our work and social environments work faster and more accurately than ever before. This requires a new understanding of the ability to take risks, embrace failure and progress. It requires developing an adaptive culture of failure analysis aimed at individuals, organizations and nonprofit groups. The main objective of this should be to reflect on radical solutions so that key challenges in contemporary markets and industries can be tackled by organizations. And to achieve this requires a culture of learning and unlearning before, during and after events. So now we can take a look at some possible ways of how to implement adaptive systems to the concept of failure. Firstly, and this would probably surprise a lot of people, the first one is learning from children. Success and failure are essentially two sides of the same coin. And we know that children are not afraid to fall short because they fail countless times in their early activities in trying to stand or, or learning to walk or talk or how to ride a bicycle. But the fact is that children are tenacious and they embrace failure through a unique adaptive system which they've developed by themselves. And this is done until they achieve the desired objective. Playing is a vital part of their lives by constructing a social world that values participation and that, proves, uh, that promotes new knowledge. Interestingly, there is a school of thought which argues that these, uh, the essence of play has changed over time, especially in the post-industrial period. By overly protecting children, they automatically take less risk, implying adults become afraid to fail. And this is a logically valued argument because play is essentially the opposite of work. 
And secondly, the, the second approach is helping adults to alleviate their fears. And as we discussed in the earlier piece, failure is something organizations naturally avoid. Instead of learning from failure, adults proclaim that they will never repeat the same mistake, especially because errors reflect poorly on their intelligence, which ultimately erodes their individual self-confidence. And so we arrive at something that we discussed earlier. It was uh, almost a, a dichotomy that if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough which leads individuals to fear the consequences of punishment much more than being rewarded. So the key to establishing an adaptive learning system is to provide the opportunity to experiment and fail. In other words, a tolerance of failure by continuing to engage with different outcomes, receive continuous feedback and a willingness to foster creativity and innovation. It follows, therefore, that reward is based on tasks well done rather than spectacular failures. So we can now ask which attributes of failure would support adaptive systems. If success and failure are linked, as we've already discussed, it follows that failure is inherently not bad. And what's more, it has many advantages. Let's name a few. Failure fosters empathy. It develops maturity, broadens knowledge and thinking. It provides new insights, leads to innovation by focusing on ability. It inspires and reinforces the need for risk. It builds courage, opens up new opportunities, brings unexpected benefits, tests the barriers of future performance, and it liberates us as individuals from guilt and regret. So does this mean that individuals and organizations should, to put it mildly, should they fail well? And this is a key question because the reality is that successful individuals, groups and organizations all fail much more than they succeed, largely because their overall success derives from the fact that they do fail well. Quite simply, they treat it as an ongoing process, a process about becoming, not being. They fully accept that failure is unavoidable and it needs to remain objective and it should be treated as a single event rather than a stigma to be avoided. In addition, we learn that successful individuals fully understand why they made a certain decision because it was based on information available at the time. They assessed their decision-making process based on what they knew at the time. They evaluated the overall errors by factoring in unique difficulties, costs, timelines, abilities, etc. They examined whether they had the relevant information required. They planned to obtain further qualitative and quantitative information to underpin future decisions. And successful individuals use the experience to reevaluate existing strengths and set new objectives and reassess accordingly. Learning from failure in organizations is still a sketchy topic due to organizational barriers, but in the case of individuals, it's primarily shaped by their experience, their knowledge, attitudes, and behavior. Simply put, however, the process of embracing failure must involve pinpointing errors and discrepancies, analyzing them with a spirit of inquiry, transparency and openness, and dealing with possible controversy and disagreement productively. 
So given what we've already discussed, how should failure be embraced? Well, in today's globalized world, a paradigm shift is required in order to realize that failure is the rule rather than the exception. And this demands intellectual honesty because failure is such a common experience throughout society. But it remains an issue which is hardly ever discussed. American self-help author Napoleon Hill, best known for his book Think and Grow Rich, stated in 1937 that every adversity, every failure, every heartache carries with it the seed of a greater equal benefit. And this quote supports the idea that failing well is an option because it leads to success at individual and organization level. One starting point is to change initial attitudes by being less prejudiced about the concept of failure and more focused on transforming perhaps work into play, thereby celebrating our mistakes because ultimately playing is about becoming, not being. So overall, we've covered a lot of ground in the previous sections. Let's now steer this discussion to a broader question. How is success achieved? And according to renowned author Stephen Covey in his best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change, it's necessary to have an end goal in mind. His argument was that in order to achieve success in business or any other sphere, the individual must begin with a win-win mindset. He believed there was plenty of goodwill to be shared by everyone because one person's success is not attained at the expense or exclusion of someone else. Because an individual must be willing to accept responsibility for failure first before being able to accept responsibility for success. And so by accepting responsibility for failure, the individual opens themselves to being tested a second time, which redeems them from a previous failure. And we know that fear is a major reason why people do not achieve success. Examples include fear of success changing your life, fear of not succeeding, fear of too much success and more to the point overthinking fear in general because fear is a universal concept and almost everyone harbors fear in relation to aspects of their lives such as career achievement but being afraid of success is caused by anxiety and the fear of rejection which drives us into a vicious circle making success more elusive Recognizing the reality of fear is the, the key to success in everything a person does because fear is a constant which does not disappear and it has to be addressed directly. Failure is inevitable, something that everyone encounters, but Covey's argument was to make failure a friend because each setback brings you one step closer to success. And another perspective on this unique line of thought is offered by John C. Maxwell, a leadership expert, speaker, and author. He's also the founder of the Enjoy Maximum Impact Group. He emphasizes the issue of failure by arguing that failing forward is the only way to take advantage of new opportunities for success. And during his 30 years of training people to be high achievers, he advocates that anyone can learn to fail forward. He outlines using failure for success in the following methods. Firstly, number one, don't take all the blame for failure. Instead, 
think through the reason for the failure and put your own role into proper perspective. Remember to not let yourself off the hook too easily. Always ask yourself what you may have done to increase the likelihood of success. Take Secondly, take action to reduce fear. Once you failed at something, you may be reluctant to act again until you've persuaded yourself that the possibility of failing has been eliminated. Instead, accept the possibility that you could fail again, but acknowledge that each failure offers a chance to learn something new and move on. Thirdly, change yourself. If failure continues, it's likely the problem lies with you and not the situation you're in. Work at understanding your role in the, in the failure, knowing that you must do it differently next time. And in order to benefit from the experience, Maxwell states, quote, it's not what happens to you that makes the difference, it's what happens in you, end quote. And four, finally, when you do succeed, look for big, bigger challenges. If you don't fail at least occasionally, you're not stretching yourself. You are, in fact, avoiding failure by staying in the same rut and in that comfort zone that we discussed earlier. Once you have stopped challenging yourself, you have ceased to grow. Just as you shouldn't let failure grind you down, don't let success lull you into complacency. Don't let a string of successes convince you that you have somehow arrived at your destiny. And the best you can hope for is to maintain a state of personal growth. There is in fact a very small difference between success and failure. But our mind perceives the gap to be very much bigger. When you fail, you think you are miles from success. When you succeed, you think you are miles from failure. The reality is the gap between success and failure is seldom very wide. And victory is defined by the slimmest of margins. And the winner is not the one who achieves one giant success, but someone who constantly wins small victories. And this is an important lesson for both personal and professional life. Success occurs from doing everyday things well in a consistent manner and over a long period of time. So taking Maxwell's advice on board, our next question is how do we implement successful undertakings? According to Maxwell, in order to become successful, individuals should consider increasing the ratio of success to failure. For instance, if your success ratio is approximately 50%, even a slight increase of 10% could make a significant difference in your life, especially when there is a, a push to learn from each failure. By following this pattern, Maxwell argues that individuals will find themselves engaging more in success and less in failure. One of the biggest benefits from going the extra mile is the emphasis on personal initiative. Let's now take a look at Andrew Carnegie. He was one of the most famous of all teachers of success. He was a powerful steel magnate and an industrialist. One of his most famous books is The Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie and The Gospel of Wealth. In this, he states that you cannot push anyone up a ladder unless he's willing to climb up it himself. He believed that there are essentially two types of people who never amount to anything. There are those who never do anything except what they are told to do. And there are those who cannot even do what they are told to do. Slightly harsh assessment, but still it, it serves as a, a, a reminder about success and failure. And he argued that the people who get ahead do things 
without being told. And they don't stop there because they will always go the extra mile and do more than expected. Hence, even if someone has failed at something, their progress towards success begins with a fundamental question. Where are you going? Where are you headed? Definitive purpose is the starting point of all achievement and its lack thereof will always be a stumbling block. Another well-known and highly significant teacher of success was Napoleon Hill, who advocated his law of success philosophy, which formed the foundation of many of his books. In Keys to Success, the 17 Principles of Personal Achievement, he put forward powerful arguments regarding the laws of success. He believed that by studying every person who has ever achieved lasting success, what it reveals is that each person maintained a definitive purpose. Each had a plan for reaching their goals and each devoted the greatest part of their thoughts and efforts towards that particular goal. The difference between a wish and a burning desire is profound. Everyone wants the better things in life such as money, fame, respect, but most people never go beyond just wishing for them. If you know what you want from life, if you are determined to get to that point of obsession and back, then with continuous effort and sound planning, you have initiated definitive purpose and imminent success, according to Napoleon Hill. The American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once stated that the talent of success is nothing more than doing what you can do well and doing well at whatever you do without the thought of fame. And what he's referring to in this remarkable quote is that success is the result of a continual process of becoming who you already are and loving what you do. There is no pretense involved, no uncharacteristic behavior, no facades, just a revelation of true character. So the fundamental characteristics of success is the ability to find out what you are good at and do with a passion regardless of whether or not anyone ever notices it. From this, we learn that individuals cannot be successful if they are not happy with what they're doing. The key point, to be involved in something that utilizes your natural abilities, something where you are able to motivate yourself or perhaps a position or activity that complements your existing talent. This implies that one's chances of success are commensurate with the degree of enjoyment derived from doing what you do. But again, there's a reverse argument which should be considered. Let's say someone is in a job that they hate because it fails to stimulate, fulfill or inspire. An alternative solution is to change one's attitude to the job. Is it possible that by simply changing your view your, of, of life, this could in turn ignite a new passion? By simply approaching everything that you do with renewed vigor, this will surely result in success. And this viewpoint reinforces an important point mentioned earlier that there is a minute difference between success and failure. Success begins on the inside rather than searching for factors on the outside, which brings us full circle to a previous discussion about accepting responsibility. And in the final analysis, the one quality that all successful people have is the ability to take on responsibility. Most individuals avoid it actively, but it's the one choice that will make a substantial difference in changing one's life in the long term. Contentment means taking charge and taking responsibility for where you are and where you want to be. 
each person is accountable for their results and by avoiding responsibility, there's a tendency to identify oneself as a victim. And as we know, victims lead lives of frustration, blame and create defensive barriers and excuses. So let's start wrapping up with some final reflections. From our previous discussions, we know that modern society celebrates success through individuals, organizations, or from a socio-cultural perspective, success is celebrated for a variety of reasons. We are first exposed to the concept of failure in elementary school, quickly realizing how it can affect our educational process. And this early experience with failure taints our viewpoint with great negativity. Seen from this perspective, failure is simply the opposite of success, a mental construct which pivots over society, creating its own role and interpretation for an individual. And this is particular for for high achievers, avoiding failure at all costs because failure taints their professional outlook, one sense of accomplishment and personal dignity rendering it imperfect. And when we go back to the 19th century, the term failure was commonly used in conjunction with business parlance, such as going broke or bankrupt. However, over time, this purely commercial definition evolved to include personal deficiencies, social accomplishment and moral character. But how did this change occur? How did one's financial inadequacy morph into personal inadequacy? The reasons for this are very deep and complex and beyond the scope of this episode. But one popular argument among scholars is that it relates to the idea of social branding or social control of the population. And there's clearly an element of Darwinian influence to this exercise because individual dreams of hopes are juxtaposed against nightmares of destruction. In other words, what we realize is failure is absolutely necessary to balance the scales. Individual dreams can only exist if if there is an alternative vision of failure. For one person to succeed, others must fail. And one example of this is seen in the structure of contemporary education in many advanced nations, in particular those countries which have taken this binary interpretation of success and failure to the extreme, doing whatever it takes to blot out failure. But unfortunately, the education establishment has has evolved to minimize the likelihood that students can ever fail a course or a grade or program. Failure in this context is considered a reflection of institutional adequacy rather than true learning limitation. And research data allows us to appreciate how significant failure is in the normal course of one's personal and professional life. In fact, among highly specialized professions, failure is a dominant and expected outcome. And examples include in the in the pharmaceutical industry, the clinical failure rate for drugs entering phase two testing is around 81%. Major league batters fail to hit the ball 75% of the time. Meteorologists have an overall error rate for predicting rainfall of 15%. But we also know that failure is a part of scientific methodology. All well-designed experiments are framed in terms of the null hypothesis, which 
every failed experiment changes the researcher's perspective, helping to reframe the experiment's design and leads to an increasingly refined approach to the problem. But no matter how insightful investigator is believed to have been in retrospect, the scientific approach is one of informed trial and error in the best of circumstances. And from a broader philosophical perspective, failure has great importance for a number of reasons. Firstly, failure gives us the opportunity to see ourselves close up. It's a lens through which we analyze our flaws in an otherwise perfect image of existence. Only failure can offer this insight because it mirrors the looming existential threat which constantly shadows our lives. For this reason, failure can be therapeutic, forcing us to realize that the world does not revolve around us, protecting our ego and arrogance. Instead, it offers a sobering glimpse of humility to illuminate our existence. I submit, therefore, that we should celebrate failure because it creates new insights and learning experiences. If success is deemed to be glorious, why then should failure also not be considered glorious? And once we view it through the constructive lens of self-improvement, there is no need to protect our self-esteem or ego. Otherwise, the only real mistake is not to make a mistake. And that's all we have time for in this episode. Thanks so much. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. We really appreciated your company. Thank you. We'll see you next time, next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thanks very much. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.